do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the um, Psalms, Psalms chapter, Psalm chapter 63 um, is our text for today, Psalm 63. Um, Again, there as we continue in our third message now on our present series that we called Made to Worship as we work through this. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to lead us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not only for the fact that it's true, but Father, for the fact that it's powerful. And Lord, by the Holy Spirit, it's effectual in our lives. So Lord, would you now give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are changed so that we could honor you and be found faithful to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Worship can be a struggle. It's not always easy to worship. It's not always easy to find yourself in a posture, a heart posture to worship the Lord. And this could be for many reasons. Maybe some of you feel that way even now this morning. You're, you're physically here. You're just struggling to worship. Maybe your experiences have seemed to contradict all of this hoopla about the goodness of God. Maybe there's unrepentant sin in your life that's distracting you and keeping you from seeking the Lord. Maybe there are just other distractions that are making it difficult today. You might say that this morning, but, but it's not always been that way. You can even think back to times even recently when you've engaged God and worshiped him with much joy and much pleasure. But now things are a little different. Worship seems more like a burden than a joy. Well, friend, if you do not feel that way today, chances are you will at some point. Life has a way of snuffing out our worship of God. So how do we respond when we feel as if we are in a very dry and difficult place? How do we worship God in those places? Because my guess is that as sinners living in a fallen world, your experience is not always bliss. My guess is that your heart is not always just overflowing and abounding in joy and love for God and for others. Well, friend, you're in good company. David was a man who knew what it was like to be pushed beyond his limits. He knew what it was like to be downcast and afraid. He knew what it was like to have his faith 
tested. He knew what it was like to have sin in his life, which kept him from seeing the glory and majesty of God. He knew what it was like for his worship to struggle. Psalm 63 was written by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written by David at a very difficult time in David's life. Most agree that the backdrop, the setting from which this psalm emerges was most likely written when David found himself in the wilderness having fled from his son, Absalom, who was wanting to kill him. You can find the background story in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 19. The short of it was that Absalom hated David, his father. And he sought to raise up his own supporters and set up a rival kingship in a nearby city. And that obviously disturbed David so much so that it caused him to be fearful and flee for his own safety. And now he finds himself in a desert, the wilderness of Judah, fearful for his own life. And yet he worships the Lord. Even when David was being pressured, even when David was at his wit's end and struggling significantly, he still found himself able to worship Let's see that now from Psalm 63. Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word. This is a Psalm of David, we're told, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 63, this is the word of the Lord. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh thirsts faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. It shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You may be seated. The context was a dry place, physically and spiritually. The response was worship. So as we think about Psalm 63, we're going to to observe at least three important truths 
related to our worship of God, especially when times are hard. But friends, these are truths that can also be applied when times aren't so hard. So when we think about worship, we're speaking about a context that's difficult and challenging and trying and, and hard and how David is able to press through that and worship God, which should encourage us in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our dry places, so that we too can worship God. But even when we're not in those places, what we see from this psalm can also serve you and help you. So let's think about worship. What is it about worship that we need to know from Psalm 63? Point number one, worship begins with what we believe, namely about God. Worship begins with what we believe. I mean, we could spend longer really painting the backdrop that David's not in a good place, right? He is suffering. He, his son is trying to kill him. The psalm is largely about David's expression of his longing for God. But note that this longing is, out, is not without the proper fuel. You think about a fire, right? Campfire, or backyard fire. You can have a fire but if you don't have the proper wood and the proper fuel for that fire, a wind, a breeze, rain can easily snuff that fire out. It's only when the fire is burning intensely and fueled properly that it will keep burning even when the winds are blowing. So the question is, what, is it was, what, what, what was it about David and, and the fuel. What was the fuel for his fire? Because he, he is yearning and longing for God. What, what was it that was burning in his soul? It was what he believed about God. Notice in verse one, he says, oh God, you are my God. He recognizes God generally, but immediately he personalizes this relationship that he has. God, you are my God. You're personal. You know me. You, you relate to me. So David understood God to be personal. David understood God to be powerful. Verse two, as he looked back in his own experience, he says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What David understood about God was that he was powerful and glorious. Notice, by the way, the importance of corporate worship in the life of a believer. David is alone in the wilderness, suffering significantly because of fear and not certain what his, his next moment may bring. And what does he do? He looks back to a time when he was gathered in corporate worship where he's remembering and reflecting upon the truth of who God was. Friends, what we need to take from that just briefly is that this corporate gathering will serve you throughout the week. What we do in here and how we do it in here and, and the things that we sing and the things that we teach are vital to your perseverance this very week. David's God is personal. David's God is powerful. Verse three, David's God is better. 
because your steadfast love is better than life. Verse seven, God is his helper. For you have been my help. Verse eight, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And in verses eight through 11, God is the vindicator. God is the avenger. God is the one who David's confidence is resting in because David, even as powerful as he was, was afraid and did not know what to do. And his hope was in the fact that God would bring justice. So the things that David believed about God was the fuel that burned in his own heart, that that warmed his affections for God. David was in a bad spot, his life in turmoil, and yet he was able to stay his mind on the Lord and worship in the midst of it all. Why? Because he knew who God was. David's desire for God followed his declaration of God. We could say it this way. David's affections for God burned because his belief about God was firm, rooted. And so your beliefs will always inform your affections. What you think, what you believe will always inform how you feel, what you long for and desire. And there's a lot that life will throw at us. There's a lot that presses hard in on us. But friends, even when we might find ourselves in a bad spot, there is still hope and there is still joy to be known and there is still the opportunity, even in those moments, to worship. But friends, worship will never happen in the good times or the bad times unless you see God for who he truly is. Listen again to what David says in verse three. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. And life is something that most people see as their most precious possession. I mean, think about that. When, we, when we're in a car driving down the road and, and we see, and we, we have the opportunity to maybe think this fast, and we see a car that's going to hit us. The, the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, I sure hope they have collision. <laughs> no, we're freaking out, right? That's my response is like, I'm not thinking about insurance. When we're faced with a terminal disease, there there is no expense too great to gain as many months, years as possible. Life is an extremely valuable thing. And David, even in light of that most precious reality, David says there's something better. As wonderful as life is, as good as it is, and, and, and while pr- wanting to preserve your life is a good and noble thing, there's something even better, and that is the steadfast love of God. The word here, steadfast love, is, refers to God's covenant love, a love that remains steadfast and faithful. 
It's the same kind of love that Paul highlights in the book of Romans chapter eight. When he says, verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. David says this steadfast love is better than life. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, was able to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is better, is gain. David's God and Paul's God were the same God. And guess what, folks? He's our God too. And you might have a lot on your plate today and you might be struggling with many things. You might be struggling with illness. Your marriage may be a disaster. You might find yourself lonely and afraid. Some of you might be struggling with addiction. Some of you can't quit looking at porn. There's a lot of things that will take us to the wilderness and keep us there and hinder our worship of God. But friends, don't despair. Don't despair. Worship. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look in his wonderful Face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, his steadfast love is better than life. You just need to stop where you are and look to God and affirm, say to him, God, you are better. Your steadfast love is, is better than any kind of, of, of earthly pleasure, any kind of thing that you would want to seek or desire, God is better. And until we come to that conclusion, our worship will not be this kind of intense yearning as we see here in Psalm 63. And if you're not able to say, God, you are better than life, Your worship will be hindered. Worship begins with what we believe about God. Number two, worship is sustained by what we desire. You know, as David's circumstances pressed hard in on him, David pressed hard after God. Notice verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Casually, I seek you. No, it's earnestly or early. Word can mean either one of those, but contextually, the, the point's the same. 
earnestly I seek you. And notice, notice how he compares this earnestly seeking to, to someone who's physically suffering the impact of a desert. Which is where he is, by the way. Notice David is, is, is taking his physical experience of longing after water in a dry place to describe now his yearning after God. We, we all know what it's like to be thirsty. Maybe not in the middle of a desert, but you know what it's like to be thirsty and, and you're just parched for, for something to, to satisfy you. This was David's desire for God. And this was not, friend, this was not there in the tabernacle or, or later the temple where, where all of the, the worship was, was, was centralized and, and all the things were good and right there in Jerusalem. No, this was in the desert. It's interesting that trials and difficulties have a way of revealing the object of our true affections. I mean, we long for and desire so many things. And it's often, not always, but often in the difficult times where our true affections begin to surface and emerge. I mean, David could have longed for many things at this point in his life. He could have longed for Absalom's surrender, for resources, for safety, for somewhere else other than the desert. And it's likely that he did want these things. But his longing for God was his chief desire. And our worship of God, our worship of God is often diluted or misdirected. It's, it's pushed away from God by misplaced affections. Longing for and desiring things, even good things, before the Lord. Friend, as one who would put your hope firmly upon the Lord, there is no one or no thing that could ever rob you of a deep yearning for God. The problem often though is that our affections are seeking satisfaction in the wrong places. Again, sometimes these are good things, but things never intended to be the source of your satisfying joy. Only God is to be that. To quote John Piper, he said, we have accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled. And so our worship has shriveled. Friend, you might be here as one of those whose worship has shriveled as of late. But listen, our, our worship shrivels when our affections shrivel. And our affections for God shrivels when our affections are pursuing satisfaction in other things. Like we said last week, if you're struggling to worship, don't be so quick to point to something external. 
Be quick to examine your own heart and what it is you truly believe about God and what it is that you truly desire. It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask from time to time is, is what is it that I want? What is it that I desire? What is it in life that I truly deeply crave? Just think about that. It's a great question. It's a great way to examine your own heart before the Lord. What is it that I want? Friends, I I cannot give you affection for God. I, I can't just dispense it. Here's affection for God. Come get your affection pill today. I can't do that. I can't change your heart. Only God can change your heart in the gospel. Only God can do that. God is the one who changes our heart's allegiance and by implication, our affections. But we too are responsible for cultivating our affection for God. Just a couple of passages that we could look at. Psalm 37 verse four, delights yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. There's just two verses, imperatives, commands. Delight yourself, be glad in the Lord. Emphasizing that there is responsibility that we have to cultivate our affections for God. We, we have that responsibility. Now, we can't create affections, only God can create affection. But we are called to cultivate those affections. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Thrilled you're here, please keep coming back. But if you're thinking, well, I don't really worship God because I don't, and, and you would even say, I'm not a Christian. I, I don't worship God because I'm, I'm not a believer. Or maybe you're wrestling in, in your faith and, and you're just maybe struggling to, to know God. And, and here's the truth. Only God can change your heart. So don't look anywhere else in this world for help or hope. Only look to him. Look to him because what he has done for sinners like you is that he has given his one and only son to come into this world as a man, live a perfect life and yet die a death upon a cross for your sin. And if you have any inkling of desire to trust in Jesus, friend, know that that is not something you just mustered up on your own, that that is a work of the Holy Spirit and you better run with that and cling to Christ. And that is where you will find hope and joy. And that is the Lord working in you effectually to give you affection for him. Only he can create that. But we are called to cultivate that. Friends, until you find your deepest longings, your deepest satisfaction rooted in the Lord, you will not worship him. And get this, even this deep affection and yearning can even take place in the wilderness. Simply showing up to a worship gathering like this and going through the outward motions of worship doesn't mean that we're truly worshiping. We've said that last week. We'll probably say it many, many other times. And that's obvious, right? I think most of you would agree. Well, yeah, just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm worshiping. But, but sometimes practically, I think we think that, don't we? I came to worship. Check. And true worship begins with a right view of God that results in a righteous affection for God. 
And that can happen in a gym like this. It can happen in the wilderness and anywhere in between. The location is not the issue. It is the heart that is the issue. That's why Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, verse eight. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their heart is far from me. You know, all of us, all of us have our favorite foods. Now there are foods that we simply love and crave and we just can't imagine life without them. There are other foods you won't touch with a 10-foot pole. I have many of those on my list, picky eater. But, but there are many other foods that are neither delightful or offensive. You just eat them and go on and they're just, yeah, I, I will eat this. And so for me, that would be green beans. I don't have a particular deep affection for green beans, but nor do green beans offend me. In fact, I think that it will often make a yellow looking plate with other starchy foods colorful. And so I will gladly eat green beans. I, I like them. I, I don't love them. I'm not gonna go out of my way to, to, to get green beans, but I like to eat green beans. They're, they're fine. I have nothing against them. But when you're talking about a steak, that's a different story. A steak, medium, juicy. Mm. Sorry if you're vegan, no offense. That, that, I don't get those very often. I don't get those, those enjoyable, luscious steaks but they're my favorite and I enjoy every bite. I mean, just my mouth waters even thinking about it. And so does Sophia's. <laughs> Amen. Yes. But you know, I think too often we approach God like I would green beans. He's okay. In fact, I know he's good to have in my life, but my yearnings and cravings for him are, aren't all that intense. Instead of seeing and savoring him for all that he is, he's just okay. Friend, that kind of attitude was not what got David through the wilderness. God just being okay is not going to serve you very well when it all hits the fan. It was his inward yearning and satisfaction for God. I, I love, that we go all over the Psalms, but just another Psalm that I was thinking about. This was not David. This is uh, a different Psalm, a Psalm of Asaph. In Psalm 73, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The verse right before that, notice what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's pretty extreme. 
I'm not sure too many people can honestly say that. There's nothing on this earth that I desire, God, besides you. But your steadfast love is better than life. Different people, same conclusion. Back to Psalm 63, we see that this, this is what led David to say in verse eight, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This, this clinging means to, to keep close, to go hard after. It's, it's chasing. It's like a child running up to keep with, with his parents who are just a few steps ahead. David's experience in the wilderness doesn't hinder him from, from staying firmly united to God. And so in that vein, our worship of God involves a clinging to God, doesn't it? We're holding fast to God, all the while realizing that he's holding fast to us. Do you, do you earnestly seek God? I know that's just a vague kind of question. But when you begin to, to consider the depth of this yearning and desire can you describe your passion for God in the same terms? Can you? And if not, do you begin to understand what gets you there? It's, it's first and foremost, God. It's, it's what you think about him and how you relate to him, whether or not he's your God and whether or not you know him in this personal way and, and you understand exactly who he is. If your worship is deficient, it's because, likely because your view of God is deficient and your affections. Lead me to point number three. I'm gonna tie these, these all together. So worship begins with what we believe. It's sustained by what we desire, but it's expressed in what we do. Now, up until this point, everything that we've highlighted about David, about his response to God, about us, has largely been internal, right? Heart, what we think, how we feel, what we desire. And for worship to be properly expressed, our hearts must be fully engaged. So it's right that we look at the hearts, understand that outward manifestations of, wor manifestations of worship don't mean squat unless the heart is rightly engaged. But I don't want us to miss the important relationship that the internal has with the external Inward, listen, inward affection for God will inevitably lead to outward expressions of worship. Inward affection for God, which is driven by our belief about God, inward affection for God will inevitably lead to outward expressions of that affection in worship. There are many outward manifestations of worship, even in this psalm. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. All of these outward responses, 
Most of it's singing, hand lifting, praising. All of these outward responses are fueled by David's view of God and his view of God has impacted his affection for God, which cannot help but be demonstrated in some kind of outward response. Singing, praising, hand-raising are all biblical outward forms of worship that are compelled by a heart overflowing with affection for God. We're likely going to have an entire message on singing later on in this series. But just to whet our appetite a little bit, singing is a God-given means for affection and emotion to be expressed. I mean, there are just some truths too glorious, too amazing for us just to talk about them. I mean, truths so amazing and so glorious that we can't help but sing. There's no other response. I mean, we could talk about the righteousness of God and talk about the glory of God. But friends, until you understand, when you begin to understand these things and how amazing they are, it's like a relief valve comes out, right? It's, it's, it's as if we can't help but do anything more except sing. And so I wanna push on some of you who just stand there. I don't see you because I stand on the front row, but I know you exist. Friend, your affections for God are very revealing. What do you believe about God? What are your affections? I'm not saying you have to get all charismatic and run up and down the aisles and all of those kinds of things, not at all. If you do that, some people will have a heart attack in here. (laughs) But emotion in worship is a good God-ordained reality. And I would say that in a Baptist church and in a Presbyterian church. And I would say it in a Pentecostal church. It's true. Emotion in worship is a great God-ordained reality. Emotionalism is dangerous. Sometimes we're struggling with uh, two to ends of of reverence and yet emotion. And and we can go to two different extremes, can't we? We can go to almost a a, a hyper-solemn, very somber gathering to almost a chaotic, unbridled gathering where there's not much good there either. But friends, when you get a hold of the truth, and God's glory and God's character is on display through the things that you read and hear and sing, there is joy. There is pleasure. There is passion that ought to emerge in your soul. And we're all going to express that differently, right? All of us will express that differently. So don't be judging someone that you might not think should be as passionate as you are expressively. They may be, but Consider your own heart. Inward worship must always give way to outward expression. 
You see it right here in David. And whether it's through song and prayer and hand raising, or even in, as we talked about last week, your obedience, your life, worship while beginning in the heart cannot stay there. That's why we need to sing. And that's why we should also sing songs that are giving our hearts good things to sing. A lot of times we talk about the beat of a song and we should sing songs that are upbeat and joyful. Absolutely, we should. I made this up this morning, but the beat of the song should not be nearly as important as the meat of a song. That's free. You can quote me on that one. That just came this morning. It's true. The beat, it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. Not nearly as important as the contents. That's why our content must be radically centered upon God and radically shaped by the gospel. And there's a range of people and a range of emotion in this room every week. There are weary saints here today. There are sad saints in this room today. And there are hopeful and happy people in this room today. And that's why our songs need a range of content and emotion. For example, you might have had a real good week this week. And you came in here and said, dear refuge of my weary soul. Well, friend, the person sitting beside of you or in front of you or behind you, their life might have been a living hell this week. And the very thing they needed to hear was dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. And that is like refreshing water to a weary soul who's been languishing in the desert. It's like balm for a festering wound. And even a person at that place can then begin to celebrate and rejoice in the amazing goodness of God. What we believe about God informs our affections for God which in turn results in our outward response to God. It's a great summary of worship. Beginning with what we believe, what we think, which in turn affects what we desire and how we feel, which in turn affects what we do. Friends, when you're in a dry, difficult place, 
and you find it challenging to worship, the last thing you need to abandon is worship. The very thing that saw David through his many ordeals was his resolve to hold fast to God. You might feel dry today. You might feel guilty. You might be hurting. But don't think for a moment that God cannot be found and worshiped where you are. And by God's grace, let your mind and heart lead you by the spirit of God, by God's grace, let your mind and heart lead you to remember that God is our help, that his steadfast love is better than life. And then through our earnest affections, may our mouths praise him. May our lips rejoice. May we cling to him. May we cling to him, friend because he does hold us fast in his sovereign love. Let's pray. Father, so often we think of worship and we think of happy, joyful experiences, which Lord, I'm so thankful that many of my experiences of joy and happiness have been in the context of worship. Lord, I pray that you would give us many more of those experiences, many more of those times where our worship is a celebration and a, just radiating with, with, with happiness and pleasure and joy. But for, Father, also the truth is that even in those wilderness moments, when you feel far away, when the pain seems too deep, when the fear is paralyzing, when the questions are many, when the darkness seems as if it can't get any darker, Father, I pray that we would remember who you are. Father, that our hearts would be drawn to you and that your greatness and your glory would be remembered even here in this congregation today. That we would remember that you are our, our help, that you hold us fast, that you keep us near and that you work for our good that nothing, Lord, nothing can stay your hand. You will have the final word. And Father, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that loneliness and fear and, and difficulty, that our hearts would just be refreshed so that we can worship you. So Lord, would you work deep in our hearts? Would you work deep in our beliefs this morning so that our outward expressions of worship would be more and would be sincere. God, we love you. 
And Lord, would you help us? Would you help us with David to affirm that your steadfast love is better than anything else in this life? Father, we thank you in Christ's name.